You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Lauren Holmes, author of the short story collection, Barbara the Slut, which contains 10 stories. Holmes' main characters and the narrators of her stories all have strong, particular, and often funny voices. The book is populated by quirky and vulnerable souls, like a partially deaf female photographer who is stuck working as a babysitter after a bad breakup, a young woman who visits her estranged mother in Mexico with a suitcase full of Victoria's Secret underwear, a straight woman who lies to get work at a lesbian sex toy shop, and a shelter dog narrator who tells the story of his owner's breakup. We conducted the interview via Skype and began discussing where Holmes' stories start. They don't really start so much with a character for me as from like small, some small situation and usually like some small kernel of real life, either my own life or somebody else's life or like, you know, a news story that I've read or something small that that I'm like, okay, that's an interesting situation. You know, who could be in this situation? You know, who could I create? What characters could I create? And I think for me, you know, a big part of learning how to write this book and learning how to write fiction was really learning how to fictionalize characters and and not just fictionalize real characters, but like make them up out of thin air. Um, and when I was in college, I wrote really like autobiographical fiction or fictionalized autobiography or, you know, whatever. And, and part of learning how to write was um, was really learning how to create characters. And so I think for me, it was actually easier to start with the idea of a situation and then make up characters to go in the situation rather than start with a character who might be like too inspired by me or somebody else that I know. And I think maybe that's why, they, you know, I'm glad they seem different to you. Um, and I think, you know, that's why is that they're, they're more like characters that I make up to fit the situation rather than, you know, people that are inspired by people I know. Can we talk about one of those stories? You can pick. Sure. Yeah. Well, one of the most straightforward ones is the first story, um, How Am I Supposed to Talk to You? So it's about a girl who goes to visit her mother in Mexico and she is intending to come out to her. Um, and the mom is just kind of this self-absorbed. Um, she's not such a great mother, um, although she's trying. Um, and that story actually came out of when I was in college. I took a semester off and I lived in Mexico with a homestay family. And there's a teenage girl in the homestay family. And she had this idea that I could send her Victoria secret underwear so she could resell it to her friends at a big markup and that was a big market in Mexico it was like you know there would be like diesel jeans for like the you know U.S. equivalent of like you know twice what they were here that people were willing to pay because they you know and I'm sure now it's different and it's imported in a different way but um, but at the time that stuff was you know in high demand so I was kind of like okay that's interesting smuggling underwear that's an interesting situation who could be in that situation like who would who would be weird <laughs> to be in that situation and I was like okay well a mother and a daughter that would be weird um, if a daughter was smuggling underwear for her her mother and so I just kind of out of that, tried to think of like, okay, what's their situation? What's their history? What's their relationship? Who are these people? You know, if a daughter is smuggling underwear 
to Mexico for her mother. Like, why does the mother want that underwear? Like, what is her position in life? And so it just kind of all all came out of that. And then there's another part of that story that ended up coming out of real life. And it wasn't where I started, but it was something that I took from my life, which is that, you know, in the story, the mother goes out to say goodnight to the guy that she's dating and she doesn't come back. You know, when I was writing that story, I was like, okay, you know, they're on this trip. The daughter has smuggled the underwear, but that's not the point of the story. And there needs to be something else that happens, something maybe bad that happens between the two of them. So I came to memory this this situation that I had when I was in college, which is that one of my high school friends came to visit me in college and, you know, we were going to bed and I had just started dating somebody and I was like, well, you know, I'm just going to go say goodnight and I'll be right back. And then when I got to the room of the girl that I was dating, I was like, well, you know, my friend's going to sleep anyway, so... I'm sure she'll be fine and I'll just stay here for a few more hours and I'll get up at like 6 a.m. and go back. And when I got back to my dorm room, my friend was gone and she had just left and taken a bus back to New York City. And it was just this moment in my life that I, you know, where I had really done something bad and really hurt somebody. And so I kind of repurposed that as something that the mother in that in that story could do. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Lauren Holmes, author of the short story collection, Barbara the Slut. So one of my favorite stories in this collection is called Desert Hearts, and the main character and the narrator is Brenda. Brenda moves with her boyfriend to San Francisco, and she is a a lawyer. She passed the bar. She can work. But she just doesn't. She's kind of lost. And her boyfriend has this very serious job. And she ends up getting a job in a sex toy shop. And she there's two sort of brother-sister sex toy shops. One's really for lesbians and one's for gay men. And she ends yeah. up working at the lesbian one. And she lies and says she's a lesbian. And I think this story is really funny. But can you just tell me a little bit about the genesis of this story for you? And then we'll talk a little bit about the humor. So that one was another one that I I sort of took a kernel of my real life. Um, So also when I was in college, I got an internship working at the Fine Arts Work Center in Provincetown. Wellesley, my college, gave me some some stipend for the summer that I was supposed to use to do this internship. But when I got to Provincetown, I had like already spent all the money, so I needed to find a job to get through the summer, and I wasn't really qualified to do anything. Um, like I didn't have any experience waitressing or anything like that, so I ended up getting a job in a sex toy store, um, and. It, one of the big sort of departures for that is like, you know, I do identify as queer and I had, you know, I had a really serious girlfriend at the time and, um, but I look very straight and present as straight and the woman who owned the stores was very uncomfortable with me working there and, um, you know, she had, I had gotten hired by the manager, but then when she came to meet me, she was like, oh no, (laughs) you're not working here. Because, Um, because you didn't look gay enough. Right. Yeah. And I, And I just sort of, I mean, I hung on to that idea for a long time. And when I was writing the story, you know, when I was sort of looking for story ideas, I was just thinking about that situation and thinking about how interesting it is in terms of like gender and sexuality and how we present. And, you know, uh, looking back, the you know, I understood, you know, at the time I was like, what the hell, (laughs) you know, like I can sell these sex toys as good as anybody, 
but looking back, I, you know, I realized that that woman did want to have a safe space in her store where people felt like, you know, where lesbians could feel like they were buying sex toys from other lesbians. Um, and so I sort of get, get why she was nervous. Um, but then they ended up having much bigger problems than me. So at the beginning of the summer, she was kind of nervous about me working there. And then they ended up having, you know, problems that were not at all ended up being part of the fictional story. And, you know, she finally just gave up and let me work there. I want to go back to this notion of, of your real life experience and then how you changed it for the book. So in your real life experience, it turned out okay that you didn't look gay enough, even though that's how you identified. And in this story, she tried to look gayer and she was really good at selling. I mean, that was one of the things is like they didn't like her because she or this one woman, Pammy, didn't like her because she didn't look gay enough. But she was so great at her job. And you said in your real life that you sort of understood that. And I'm wondering if you could just unpack that a little more, because I think I feel like offended for you that they would have, you know, <laughs> not wanted you there. And yet you're not as offended by that. So can you just explain that a little more? Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, part of what I wanted to do in the story is like flip that on its head a little. And I felt like it wasn't as interesting to have a gay woman who is not believed to be gay. I felt like it's more, it was more interesting in the story and sort of like more ripe for conflict to have somebody who's straight and, you know, is lying. And it just, I just felt like I could examine that situation better that way. I think in sort of transferring it from real life, also a lot of it for me is about really actively making the characters different from me. So the characters that do have similar situations to situations that I've had, it's really important to me that they have, you know, at least one defining characteristic that makes me feel like they're other, you know, that they're not me. And so I think, you know, in sort of translating my real life to that story, I, another thing was, you know, I feel like, like what you just said of you being offended for me, like, I feel like in real life, it was too clear cut, you know, it was like, I was queer, and I was being accused of not being queer. And it was just kind of left at that. And in the story, I felt like it was more complicated, you know, for this girl to be lying, but then, you know, actually like the job and be good at the job. And also just sort of more complicated in terms of she ends up in the story, kind of getting this girl to pretend that she's her girlfriend and she has kind of weird feelings about that girl because she's been a little bit distanced from her fiance and you know the girl like touches her on her back and she gets this feeling you know through her body that she hasn't felt in a while because she feels like she hasn't been touched by her fiance in a while as they you know as they've both been busy. And um, so I just felt like there were more opportunities, both in terms of distancing myself from the character and in terms of, um, you know, complicating the plot and, and sort of what could happen between those characters. How do you feel in your life now about what gay women are supposed to look like? <laughs> I, I give up. No. Um, well, it's so interesting. I am um, I talked about this on another podcast with um, Angela Ledgerwood and Camille Perry, and we were sort of talking about what it means to look gay and that it's, you know, part of what was important for previous generations of lesbians in terms of looking gay is like being identifiable by other lesbians and being, you know, being seen as gay was what got you to meet people. Um, and I feel like I grew up in a really different 
environment and you know I went to Wellesley College all women and I guess like my understanding on campus was like everyone is either actually gay or like willing to be gay temporarily so it's just like everyone's up for grabs kind of um and so I really didn't have that much trouble although I will say this is um this is embarrassing I just I, I haven't really thought about this in a while, but as soon as I got to, I'd always had long hair and I'd always looked really feminine. Um, and as soon as I got to college, I cut off all my hair as like, I don't even know what I just, I kind of just wanted to see what would happen. And, you know, and I think I wanted to be seen as gay in a way that I knew that I wasn't. It was pretty short lived, like within a couple of months, I started realizing like, okay, this is not me. And I don't really care, you know, what people can identify me as. Um, but this, this hair is, you know, I, I just didn't feel like myself. And now after, I mean, obviously in college, I only dated women because there was no better opportunity to only date women. But now I also date men and I feel like more comfortable with, you know, myself and my looks and my sexuality in a way that I think is something that's nice about being in your 30s. It's like, you know, while I was in college and in my 20s, I was trying to figure all that stuff out. And I feel like at this point, I'm just like, well, this is who I am and this is what I look like and take it or leave it. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Lauren Holmes, author of the short story collection, Barbara the Slut. This interview was recorded on Skype. Almost all of your short stories include a dog. Can you talk about that and including dogs in your stories? I mean, I think for me, it is animals are part of building a whole world. Um, I actually wrote an essay about this that never went anywhere because it was just in the um, in the catalog that my publisher put out when my book was going to come out. You know, I realized how sort of functional they are in terms of plot and creating problems or creating humor. But also, I just think, like I said, it's, you know, part of creating a real world. And in the real world, you know, people have pets and they have jobs and they have families and they have neighbors. And I think, you know, sometimes when either, you know, books or movies or TV, when they don't feel full, it's because one of those elements is missing. And there's something that makes it feel like the world that the person lives in is a little bit flat and, you know, and doesn't include all these dimensions that we have in real life. And so I think, you know, part of it beyond, you know, the benefits of adding animals for plot um, is the benefit of making these worlds feel real and, and feel full. I wanted to ask you about the story Jerks. Um, in, in that story, the main character is broken up with, moves back to Massachusetts, and she ends up being a babysitter for a young boy who has a hearing impairment, and so does she. And I'm wondering if you if you do. Um, I do. <laughs> How did you know? <laughs> um, yeah, I do. Um, I'm hearing impaired, and I, you know, I do well, like I wear hearing aids, but it was definitely a a big part of growing up for me was being hearing impaired and sort of dealing with that in, you know, school and in social situations. Yeah, that that was a piece of real life. How did being hearing impaired affect your confidence as you grew up? I mean, it definitely had an effect on it. I mean, I have like, you know, moments come to memory of like times that I was teased or that um, like 
it, I remember one time I was in high school and I was at the mall with two girlfriends and one girl's boyfriend. And I was walking with one friend and the other girl and her boyfriend were walking a couple of feet behind us. And it, it turned out that she was like demonstrating to her boyfriend how deaf I was by like saying stuff behind me and having me not turn around. And I was like, dude, that sucks. Don't be a jerk. Um, and stuff like, and another time I was, you know, I had a crush on on a guy in high school and he told my friend that he didn't want to date me because he was tired of repeating himself when he, you know, we, when we tried to talk. And I'm sure that was not the actual reason that he didn't want to date me. But like the fact that he thought that that was something that he could say to like get rid of me <laughs> was so rude. Um, but I, you know, I really, I think I had a overall good experience based on, you know, how bad it could have been. Like I went to a very small school and I was in very small classes. And I think I basically, you know, had as good of a situation as I could have had without, you know, without growing up with hearing aids or, you know, like a bone anchored hearing aid or something like that. Do you think that's partly why you have this rich inner life? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've thought a lot about how it affects sort of the way that I think and, and my writing. And, um, you know, one thing I've thought a lot about is how, you know, I have to pay so much attention when people are talking to me to know what they're saying, you know, and I, I read lips too. So it's like, I'm just so focused on the person that I'm talking to in a way that I, I don't think I would otherwise be. And I feel like it's made me really pay pay attention and and also commit to memory sort of like the way that people speak and the cadence of of speech and um you know things that I'm not I mean obviously there are many writers who are not hearing impaired but it just seems to me to be a part of my life that has really lent itself to sort of memorizing what people are saying and the ways that people interact with each other. And it just, I think it heightens my other senses in a way that I feel like has been helpful to me as a writer. You got your MFA from Hunter College, and then you continued to write for a few years and then got this published. Can you talk about that? I really didn't have a good, you know, writing practice. I think while I was in grad school, I was, you know, really manic about it and I wouldn't write at all. And then I'd write nonstop for three weeks to turn something in. And it really took me a little over a year to um, get back into writing after I graduated and and start beginning the process of finishing the book. Um, and I, I ended up, you know, I just kind of realized I was never going to get it done with the way, you know, at the rate that I was going. So I ended up making a deal with my friend Phil where I would write for an hour every day, no matter what. And he would, you know, check in on me and I would let him know you know, when I was done. And I mean, not that it's such a foreign idea, but I had read something that Amy Bender wrote in Oprah magazine where she had had a similar contract with a friend. And Phil was amazing about it. I mean, he was a Marine um, and he was <laughs> not joking around. And he'd call me at like 5 p.m. and be like, where's my hour? Like you didn't email me yet. And I would be like, dude, it's 5 p.m. I've only been awake for like four hours and I have so many more hours in the day before I go to bed. Calm down. I'll send it to you. But it, it just, I guess it just seemed like such a long time between when I graduated from Hunter and when I had something that was ready to send out to agents. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Lauren Holmes, author of the short story collection, Barbara the Slut. 
Can you share something from another author that influenced you as a writer? One of the books that really influenced me in a major way and um, is my college mentor, Alicia Arians. And before she was my teacher or my mentor, I went to a reading that she had on campus and I listened to her read and I ordered her book right away or maybe I bought it at the reading. Um, and I really, I really, it was sort of a defining moment for me in terms of being like, oh, if that's how, you know, if that's how writing can work and if that's what a writing voice can be, then I, you know, then I want to do this. So it's from um, Towelhead by Alicia Arian. So this is the first two paragraphs of the book um, of chapter one. My mother's boyfriend got a crush on me, so she sent me to live with daddy. I didn't want to live with daddy. He had a weird accent and he came from Lebanon. My mother met him in college, then they got married and had me, then they got divorced when I was five. My mother told me it was because my father was cheap and bossy. When my parents got divorced, I wasn't upset. I had a memory of daddy slapping my mother and then of my mother taking off his glasses and grinding them into the floor with her shoe. I don't know what they were fighting about, but I was glad that he couldn't see anymore. I still had to visit him for a month every summer, and I got depressed about that. Then when it was time to go home again, I got happy. It was just too tense being with Daddy. He wanted everything done in a certain way that only he knew about. I was afraid to move half the time. Once I spilled some juice on one of his foreign rugs, and he told me that I would never find a husband. Do you want to elaborate at all on what about this particular passage really spoke to you? I mean, I think it was just, you know, really setting up what the book was and setting up. So the um, the narrator of the book is, um, I think she's 13 when the book starts. Um, and she, I just felt like this voice was so immediately, you know, so conversational, so true to like a 13-year-old girl um, and so specific about sort of her worldview and the way that she experiences the world and the way that she processes, you know, the information that she has. And I just, you know, still remember, I mean, I guess like 12 years ago at this point, but I still remember just starting this book and being like, oh, like, Yes, I am in. Can you read something that you wrote that was maybe hard to write or changed a lot from the first draft or something you really like how it turned out? Yes, yeah, sure. So this is um, the beginning of the story, My Humans. New humans are here. I smell them. Everybody is barking. I hear them and now I see them. Hi, the female says, you're so quiet. They go away and they come back. She looks like a golden retriever to me, says the female. I thump my tail. Yeah, you're pretty. I thump my tail some more. The female laughs. I thought you wanted a young dog, the male says. I don't know. All the other dogs seem so crazy. The female bends down and puts her fingers through the cage. I taste them. She's so sweet, says the female. She does seem like a nice dog. They go away. Eunice comes and opens the door. I wag my tail. Here's your big chance, princess, she says. Don't blow it. We are outside and the humans are here. I wag my tail for them. Here she is, says Eunice. We don't know what her name was before, but she just looked like a princess to me. Hi, princess, the female says. I'm Jenna and this is Mike. 
And you want to talk about that? So that um, is a story from the perspective of a dog named Princess. Um, and that story was so hard one for me. I mean, I really struggled with writing the story. And I started it while I was at Hunter. And both of my mentors there were kind of like, um, no, you will not be writing a story about a dog for this class. Um, and I, you know, I was just so determined to make it work. And it took me probably at least five years from start to finish to sort of crack the story. Um, and Phil was somebody who really helped me. He just basically said, like, you need to figure out what the rules for the world of this story are and the rules of how this dog experiences the world that she lives in. Um, and, you know, once you make up those rules, you need to be consistent. And it just took me so long to figure out what those rules could be. And I ended up reading like all these dog psychology books <laughs> to like try to find something that was going to help me like crack this code and I found a lot of things and I you know I made like pages and pages of notes and all the books have like a million little tags in them with notes um, but one of the things that I ended up focusing on is the idea that you know dogs I mean for what little we know about dogs um, is that, you know, they really don't have a, a sense of time and they don't have a sense of like the past and the future. They only really live in the present at all times. And, you know, I don't typically write in present tense because it just, it feels to me like false, like in a way that I, you know, I really want to write conversationally and I want to write as if a story is being told and it just to narrate a story as it's happening always doesn't quite ring true to me but with the dog story I was like okay well you know if I'm already asking people to suspend you know like if I'm already asking them to believe that this is a dog narrating a story that you know speaks and writes in English might as well be in present tense and I think that really helped me have a sense of you know there's no backstory here the dog's not thinking about anything that's happened before the dog's not thinking about anything that's about to happen she's really only experiencing what's happening at that exact moment where do you write I have a hot pink writing chair uh we had these chairs in my college library these orange chairs that I used to nap in when I was supposed to be studying and I always thought that when I like grew up I would get one of those chairs and then it turned out that they were womb chairs which are like a million dollars and so when I sold my book I got like a cheap one on Craigslist um, and it's hot pink and uh, and I write there. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? You know I don't know that I ever really get away from writing which I think is you know, part of why I felt like I didn't really have a choice but to be a writer. Um, but my main thing that I do to relax is uh, walking my dogs every day. But I actually end up, you know, writing almost as much there, you know, on my walks. I just, you know, I'm constantly thinking of like sentences or ideas. Um, and so my phone is full of, you know, notes that I've dictated myself that I think of on the walks. And who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Um, I have two writer friends that I uh, show everything to usually multiple times, um, Phil, Cly, and Jess Locker. And um, they, I mean, I don't send it to both of them right away, um, but I'll like stagger, like I'll send it to one of them first and then do another draft and, and send it to the other. And I have another non-writer friend, Casey, who um, is so wonderful to send things to because she just loves everything and 
you know, and she'll, she'll sometimes have a couple of small suggestions. Um, but it's just like, she's the best person to send to when I just want, you know, compliments and praise. And how have you dealt with rejection? I have a kind of, I think a kind of unusual relationship to rejection, which is that I like, I just like feeling like things are squared away. And so I like getting the news that I've been rejected from something just so that I know that it's done, you know, and that, and that I don't have to wonder if I'm going to get, you know, whatever fellowship or whatever publication. Um, And so I think my agent's both think that I'm like such a weirdo because I just, you know, nobody likes giving bad news, but I, I like, you know, I don't like receiving it. It's not that it doesn't hurt, but it's, um, you know, I like that feeling that things are, are done. And I also think, you know, for me and like my life philosophy that I've come to in my wise thirties is that, you know, a lot of the times that I've been rejected something, you know, better has come along. Like when I was graduating from college, I applied to a bunch of MFA programs and I didn't get into a single one. Um, And then two years later I applied again and I ended up at Hunter and I just feel like, you know, that was my path. Like the people that I met at Hunter, you know, like I wouldn't have those people in my life. I certainly wouldn't have this book. You know, I might have a different book, but I just, you know, feel like the times that I have gotten rejected have, you know, in the long run turned out well. And what is your favorite word? Um, You know, I feel like as a writer, I'm supposed to be into like the sounds of words, but I'm not really. I can't divorce the words from their meaning. So I feel like when I think about words that I like, it's like cookies, cake, like pie, cheese. Like it's like words that I like the meaning of of what it is. Um, But one word that I do like, not I can't say that it's my favorite, but I like the word crap. I feel like it's always funnier than the alternatives. Like when somebody is like, oh, crap, or like says they're having a crappy day or. <laughs> yeah, I, don't know. I like that word. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Lauren Holmes, author of the story collection, Barbara the Slut. The interview was recorded on Skype. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The First Draft music is produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.